Hello from lovely San Francisco, California. This is the ABA Annual Conference, and we're here. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law and Thinking Like a Lawyer. I am Holly Cooper from UC Davis School of Law. And I'm Elisa Massimino from Human Rights First. And we're on the road with the Legal Talk Network. Well, welcome, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about a panel that has just concluded about refugees. And so we're going to talk about some of the legal issues surrounding the crisis going on around the world and here in America, the after the effects of that, we'll say. So tell us about this panel that you just concluded about this issue. Yeah, so we gave an overview of both the domestic issues that are happening with refugees arriving in the United States and sort of some of the overlooked issues with respect to our own domestic policies. And then we also compared those to what's happening in Europe with the arrivals of refugees, primarily from Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq. We framed the panel around this concept of a global refugee crisis. You know, the world is facing the biggest refugee crisis since World War II. And it puts huge demands on countries like the United States to step up and provide leadership. One of the things that I think it's important for us to remember is that the crisis itself is less about the refugees and more about the failure of governments to step up and live up to their obligations under international law to give refugees the protection to which they're entitled. That's the real crisis. So we spent a lot of time talking about government policy and where it's falling short. Well, when it comes to the U.S.'s response to this, it seems though like there's international law dimensions, but there's also the quirk of the American system. There's federalism problems, I would assume, right, with states who are claiming they won't let anyone in and so on. How do we, how does a government that has these competing, often for showboating political reasons, sub-governments that are getting in the way of a national policy and living up to international obligations. What can we do about that? Well, from a legal perspective, state governments don't have a role. They can't deny entry of refugees to their states. Um, And this is a federal government program. But of course, no government wants to send vulnerable refugees or victims of persecution to a place where they're going to experience hostility. So, you know, one of the things that that we talked about today is the difference between the legal challenges for this system and the political challenges. And I think there was a consensus that the biggest challenges are political. Uh, So we have to deal with that. Yeah, it it seems as though it's there's that difference. Rubber meets the road difference between what's legal and the ability of a state government to cause problems by just, you know, being, well, mean. Oh, <laughs> but I would, I, would, I would pause there because we yeah. are in the state of California, which has had some of the most progressive state legislation dealing with immigrants in their favor mm. of anywhere in the United States. So we are, there is an intersectionality to state law, especially when you're dealing with children's issues and detention issues, with, because primarily most immigration detention is done through county jail contracts. Um, so there is some aspects of both detention and immigration that when it does intersect with the state law, the state can have a positive impact on that, especially um, I've seen in the, in the arena of juvenile protections. 
for children in foster care who are immigrant youth, as well as children who are incarcerated in, in juvenile jails. We have had some positive headway um, supported by Governor Brown. So yeah, so that's sort of a maybe it's, a, it's more of the the positive aspects of right. federalism. You can <laughs> where there's a floor and there's a possible right, right. ceiling that the states can help with. Yes. Well, you mentioned talking about Europe and the issues over there, and I think we've heard from our corner over here in America, we hear about what goes on in Europe, but I don't know as though, you know, mainstream news, what are we really learning from them? So maybe we aren't really understanding what's going on over there. So recap for us what's happening in Europe with regard to the refugees. Well, one thing to keep in mind, of course, is that the whole European project is under siege. And with Brexit, you know, the, the issue of immigration was certainly used by the um, proponents of Brexit uh, to encourage people to vote uh, leave. Now, if you talk to uh, British politicians and security people, th which I have, they say that actually there's very little real connection between the challenges that face the United Kingdom and the, and the, the current immigration crisis. In fact, you know, Britain's taking very, very few refugees from the Syrian crisis, but it is ripe for uh, demagoguery. And in fact, the failure of European governments who should have seen this refugee crisis coming years ago, mm -hmm. at least two or three years ago. I mean, it's interesting when we use the word crisis, you know, that there was a, the Syrian civil war is in its sixth year now, yeah. you know, and the surrounding states have been receiving refugees during that entire time. It's only when the food aid was cut and they were realizing, hey, our kids aren't going to school, we're losing a generation here, that they took to these dangerous journeys and went to Europe. And that's when it became a global crisis. You know, so there's a, there's a lot of, uh, I think, justifiable cynicism on the part of the neighboring states saying, what the heck? You know, we have been hosting millions of refugees with very little help from the rest of the world. And now it's a crisis. So, I mean, I think that Europe is struggling. And these scenes of disarray that you see with long, you know, with, with camps and with states talking about putting up fences and all of that is partly a reaction to a sense that the governments are not, you know, competently dealing with uh, the refugees. It's certainly not a question of there being too many yeah, so I volunteered for a while in, in the refugee camps this summer in Greece, which mm -hmm. was interesting. And I've also worked with refugees here in the United States for over 18 years, so I got to do a little bit of a comparison. You know, I think equal to the European crisis, I think Americans are not aware of is the refugee crisis here in our own backyard, especially in California and Texas. And on, We've seen one of the largest surges in refugees on our borders as well, but from a different demographic, which is that of the Central Americans which is, the, you know, the, the Golden Triangle, as they call it, Honduras, El Salvador, um, Guatemala have some of the highest homicide rates of anywhere in the world for a non-war zone. So um, equal to the crisis in Europe is our own, you know, lack of response here domestically um, addressing that. In fact, you know, we've basically stigmatized it and we detain it. We've privatized the detention arena. So we've incentivized the economics of a refugee crisis here in our own country, which I think is distinct from that of Europe is... Europe isn't really profiting off of human misery as we are here in the United States. You know, that's an interesting thing to take from both. So the, the profiting off of this in America, and you use the term ripe for demagoguery in Europe, the crisis to the extent that 
that you know it's coming from all these different directions seems to carry with it a rise in xenophobic nativist lingo. There might be somebody in the presidential election who does a little bit of that here. I don't know. I've not been following it, but <laughs> I've heard things. Uh, what are the, when it comes to political risks of just on the front level demagoguery, I mean, you mentioned Greece. They had basically the Nazi party do well in some elections, not in the distant past. How do we, and this is more of a political matter than a legal matter, I think, how do we increase the understanding and fight back against that to prevent it both here and abroad? Well, here, one of the things that my organization is doing, um, we've launched a campaign called Refugees Renew America, and a big part of that is really getting the voices of national security experts uh, much more prominently into the debate, because they believe, as we do, that protecting refugees is good for our national security. So it's kind of a counterintuitive argument um, to what uh, many Americans are hearing, particularly refugees from Syria, where, you know, failing to protect them plays into the narrative of terrorist groups who argue that the only safe place for Muslims is in the caliphate that they're yeah. seeking to create. So accepting refugees from that region puts the lie to that propaganda from terrorist groups. We also have a new project called Veterans for American Ideals, which is a group of now more than 400 American veterans, most from the Iraq and Afghanistan conflict, who are going around the country talking about the importance of protecting refugees. And also they come at it from the perspective of their translators and interpreters who helped them when these service members were deployed abroad. And now because uh, these Iraqis and Afghans helped Americans, they have a big target on their backs and, and their lives are at risk. And we need to be helping bring those people over to safety. So there is a growing, I think, uh, movement of people who want to flip this conventional wisdom and have the standing to make the argument that protecting refugees is not only the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. Yeah, it strikes me as though not only is there a problem for the countries themselves being taken over by demagogues, but you bring up national security to the risk that radicalization is a thing. It strikes me as though the xenophobia is how you create that kind of climate. Yes, it's a beautiful gift yeah. to the terrorists. And to be fair, the, the current administration has been very has had very strict policies as well. Yeah. Um, I'm not as strict as the demagoguery we're hearing out of the Republican Party, um, but you know the the detention policies and the policies as applied to Central American refugees yeah. have you know been very strict, very setting a deterrent mechanism. So on the one hand, you're hearing you know the Obama administration out this policy of, of wanting to admit Syrian refugees and to address the crisis. But on the other hand, domestically at home, he's creating, you know, a system of privatization, of detention, mandatorily of women and children who are flooding our borders um, and, you know, surging onto our borders. And yet, you know, we're hearing all this critique on the, just the Trump administration, right. which, to be fair, should be equally applied to both Hillary's and Obama's administration it has not been one that has adhered to international or domestic law. Yeah, I think there was a lot of hoopla about US v. Texas, and right. it obviously a lot of folks took that ball and ran with it, like, Obama's pro-immigration thing struck down, and I was like, I don't recall him being particularly pro-immigration. Yeah, like, deportations are up. And, yeah. and any, you know, it, it's interesting. In when States. you look back, you know, pretty much every US administration has 
face their own quote unquote immigration crisis. And almost all of them, I think all of them without exception, have reacted in this. Their initial reactions are, oh my gosh, we have to you know, do everything to deter people from coming. We have to put people in detention. We have to use expedited procedures to push them back at the borders. We have to pay our neighbors to, you know, keep people from crossing our borders. All of these things which fundamentally misunderstand who refugees are. You know, how bad would your life have to be and how much fear would you have to have for your children to put them in the hands of a stranger or put them on a boat and, you know, that you know is dangerous and hope for the best? The answer is pretty awful. And that's the situation that people find themselves in. I think we have to ask ourselves as Americans, what would we do? Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's a great way of putting it that I never really thought of. It's like, yeah, we make the quip about moving to Canada if Trump gets elected, but it is much, much more difficult than that to get on a rickety boat and hope for the best. Yeah. So going back a little bit to the... Central America situation. Uh, you mentioned all the privatization and the deportations, and this also speaks, I think, to that early federalism thing. I, a thing I just learned a few weeks ago when I was talking to someone who was an expert on Central American immigration at another conference was that ICE is really farming out some of the policing of immigration things to local and state authorities. Just kind of, you pick them up and we'll deal with them afterwards. And it's incentivizing people who, or not authorized, deputizing people basically who have no understanding of the actual laws they're supposed to be following to do the dirty work, you know? Is that the sort of thing where we have potential legal recourse, where somebody could say, no, 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 you don't have that ability to deputize local folks to do your dirty work, pick them up on other crimes and so on and forth. I guess the term I heard was crimigration. Yeah, I mean, we have seen another positive is from a local level, not just in California, we have seen a pushback from county sheriffs, um, different local law enforcement that do not want to participate in, you know, executing federal immigration law. Maybe the exception to that would be Sheriff Joe. Maricopa <laughs> County, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, where, I, you know, I, you know, I used to live in Arizona, so I'm familiar with his policies. So that is definitely an exception, and there are other, other states that, that do want to participate in that. Um, so there is an ability to opt out, mm -hmm. um, and I think the narrative we're hearing from the, the sheriffs is that we want undocumented individuals as a community to trust us because we have a law enforcement priority that they operate off of information and trust with the community, and without that trust... They're not going to get critical information that they need to carry out, you know, the job well. And so, you know, if people are afraid, you know, I, I've done presentations together with police departments yeah. talking about, you know, U visas and different visas that exist. And, and But, you know, I think that when we do have local law enforcement operating as on behalf of the federal government, we make our nation less secure. Um, because without that funnel of, you know, 13 million people, providing information to law enforcement about domestic violence, about rape, about, you know, sexual abuse of a minor, whatnot, then we make our country less safe. Yeah, this is one of the areas where most responsible state and local law enforcement are in agreement that they don't want this. Now, what becomes a problem is when the federal government creates financial incentives for state and local police to become part of this mm -hmm. system, and then 
uh, it can uh, become difficult for state and local law enforcement leadership to resist that temptation. But they know, those that are, you know, experienced know, as Holly said, that this is counterproductive to our security, both just kind of basic law and order, but also in the fight against terrorism. Uh, it's really can backfire. Yeah, it seems like there might be, maybe this is just me guessing, but it seems like there might be a distinction between police departments where they're kind of run professionally and the sheriff's kind of situation where that demagoguery can be an issue where like Sheriff Joe basically gets himself elected by saying, I've got to do these awful things. And I got to imagine that there's other pockets of this country where people can get away with that as a political tool. Whereas professional police departments are like, no, that's stupid. Come on, man. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, that's when the Civil Rights Division at the Justice Department needs to get active. Yeah. <laughs> I know some people there, so you should get, you, get on you that. heard it. Get, get on that. Later. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for coming by today and sharing with us what happened in the panel. Thank you also to everyone who's listening. Uh, give us reviews on iTunes if you enjoyed this and subscribe so you can hear all of these reports and every other thing that the Legal Talk Network provides. And we will talk to you soon in another episode of On the Road with the Legal Talk Network. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, she and I were lost. It was great when she got that job because I looked at it and was like, oh, I make jokes about lost <laughs> If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Consult a lawyer.